Greenwood and these are the Money Minutes. In these tough times when gaining a customer or keeping a customer is so important, it's vital to understand whether those customers' feedback is the truth or whether they're telling you what you want to hear. In this special episode of the Money Minutes, we hear from a linguistics expert whose work is to separate fact from fiction in customer feedback. One of the big issues that will emerge in our economy as a result of coronavirus and even the recovery, whenever that might be, is just the way in which consumers react towards businesses. One of the important parts about this is trying to work out the way in which everybody will communicate in the future. What we already know and what we've discussed here on this podcast is that some are going to succeed exponentially because consumer choices will change. But the real interesting part about this is just the signals that consumers will give off to tell you as to whether you are likely to succeed or not. Remember, in Australia right now, one in 10 businesses have told the government that they will collapse if the support that's being given right now by banks, by the government and by landlords, if that were to disappear. And so really right now, the other thing that could disappear is a consumer if choices go somewhere else. Now, one of the ways in which customers traditionally have discovered what their consumers are thinking about them is the dreaded focus group. Now, focus groups have their places, no doubt, standing behind the glass walls and having the the people in front, having the cheese and biscuits and a cup of coffee, telling people what they really think about that particular brand or product. But do they really tell you what they're thinking about the product or are they telling you something more about themselves and the way in which they want to be perceived in that group? Well, this is the theory that a number of people have got together and started to think about. Alistair Herbert was the founder of a company called LinguaBrand, which is based in the UK, but also represented here in Australia. And what they did was they got work from the University of Texas, a professor called James Pennebaker, and he built software that picked out emotional intelligence from everyday language. In other words, the real signals, the real tells as to what that consumer's thinking. Alistair Herbert is with me from London. Alistair, many thanks for your time. You're most welcome, Austin. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so I've given a bit of a setup here as to how your business is able to try and consult, but there's the key. What a person is saying might not necessarily be what they're thinking, and what you try and do is to break down to find out exactly what a consumer is thinking and what they what they truly believe about the brand, its values, um, and where they're going into the future. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think it's worth just iterating the, the sort of the three big issues with focus groups. I mean, they're quite useful for, for finding out functional things, you know, how I could improve, you know, what I could do to improve this hotel room or something. But the problem is, is that they've been stretched to breaking point where people are asking what what people will do, what they think about various things. Um, and we know that we're emotional beings that think we're not thinking things with emotions. So one of the biggest the biggest problem is that you're getting people's projected self. So they're projecting who they wish to be perceived as. And this we do this all the time in our everyday life of, of interviews or or going on dates. You know, we sort of we try to say. So what happens if you if you ask somebody 
why they bought a particular car. They'll say they want to appear to be rational and logical, and they'll say, well, I bought it for, for fuel economy, I like styling, and I can fit the kids in the back. And they won't say, well, I bought it because I need to feel social connectedness to the people around me, and, uh, and, and it satisfies my aspirational values, although that's more likely to be the reality. And the other thing when you get people into groups, the first psychological need is safety. So you'll get false percent. People will, will, will take their money and walk away having agreed with things. And, th- and then the third big thing is, is moderated bias. And this is really where, where what we do comes in, because all language is inherently persuasive. We, we speak in pictures all the time and describe things, one thing in terms of another. And, and we've worked with companies in Australia and analysed the language from, from focus groups where, where, where they said, oh, well, the really important thing here is that people are buying, you know, younger people are buying this because of speed. You know, we've, we've, we've seen this in our, and heard this in our focus group. And when we analysed it, yep, sure, there's plenty of language around speed. But that whole thing is being set up by the moderator who right at the beginning said, now, listen, we've got to introduce each other really quickly. Uh, I, want to, I want us to get through this really fast today. And actually asking someone directly, tell me quickly, why did you select this, this particular brand? And they said, well, speed mostly. So that's really why focus groups are, you know, they're not, we find them a bit 20th century, frankly. You know, we've, we've, we've moved on and we understand that actually it's about the psychology and the connection. And, and that's really back to your introductory point about how people connect to brands. And so, people really connect to brands that, that understand them. So take me through the notion of emotional intelligence from everyday language. Give me an example of the way in which your computer system, a deep listening tool called Bob Robot, um, how does it pick emotional mm. intelligence out of everyday language? Give me an example. Well, I could give you certainly some examples. I'll give you a, a good example, actually, of something that we did when we were working and um, trying to understand about how people are talking about cancer. Um, and the first, this was, we were working with UK charities, two UK charities that were coming together called, uh, into an organisation called Breast Cancer Now. Um, and these are, deep, you know, these are deeply, deeply emotional issues uh, when you're dealing with health. And so the first thing we did was listen to the way all of the charities were talking about cancer. And essentially, the pictures that they were communicating with were, were and we get the metrics on this, this is, this is bottom-up stuff, were essentially saying, we are on a journey to win the war on cancer. So they are talking about things like yeah, fighting cancer, we're starting to win the war on cancer, we will end the battle on cancer, and so on. So this is this, these are the, these two big ideas, these these frames of of, of a, something which has a beginning and an end, and something which is you know, so cancer is the enemy. So the big question then was to find out how did women with breast cancer think about this? Well, what are you going to do? Get them into a focus group? I mean, these are women who are yeah, in a highly uh, stressful situation. Um, and so what we did was find the answers just by listening from distance. Because these women who are, women are so brilliant at sharing their experiences. Women were writing blogs to share with their experiences with other women. And so we found 13 women writing blogs. And very sadly, you know, two or three of those women were actually no longer with us, but their blogs were there. And we took a year's worth of blog free. So that's 13 years of thought 
from these women. And when Bob listened to them, their framing was very, very different. Their framing was to say that they weren't on a journey. Their, their issues were things about speed and impediment to movement. You know, uh, I, I really need, this is slowing my life down. Um, I'm finding it difficult to get over this. I, we, I really need to get these things done quicker. And their counselor, they framed their illness as not as, a, as, a, as an enemy. They framed it as a force. So they were saying that this has had a massive impact on my life. This has hit my heart. I'm facing a terrifying whirlwind of tests and so on. So now we understand how women frame their illness. We were able to change the messaging. So whereas all of the other charities are saying, well, you know, we're, on, we're going to win the war on cancer, help us and we will, we, will win, we will end the war on cancer with victory. Breast cancer now totally changed. They essentially took that, that thing about movement and the thing about force and said, if you help us, we will reduce the impact of breast cancer quicker. So this it, is how it? you connect the yeah, this, 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 and actually, the way that we make relationships as individuals with the people that that um, that we choose to have in our lives, so our partners, uh, our lovers, our friends, I I can be very confident and say you're three times more likely to have chosen to have those people in your life because you connect in a in your language connects because. And that's not entirely surprising. This, this comes from work um, that was published in the Journal of, 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 uh, of Language and Social Psychology, which showed on this on analysing people on speed dating, right, they were three times more likely to make a date if they had uh, uh, language style matching rather than having things in common. And they were also twice as likely to be together longer. And it's not altogether surprising because language doesn't come from nowhere. You know, we've got multiple ways of infinite choices that we can make in the way that we speak. And so the way that we connect to people is, is because our language is, 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 is saying a lot about our attitudes towards life, our pictures of the world that we're sharing all the time. So that's the same thing with brands. If you match the language from, and understand where your, where your customers are and how they're thinking about the world, um, we've just done some great work with AMZ, actually, and, and um, if you're okay, we just share a good example to understand what this picture language is. So I often ask people what money is, and you know, if people think now, what is what do you think money is? And generally, you get a couple of types of answers. You get one which is quite functional, says it's a means of exchange. Other people might say something emotional, you know, like it's money is freedom or money is slavery, but actually, money is water. Now, that might sound a ludicrous thing to say until you listen to the way that we talk about money. We talk about drowning in debt. We talk about a flood of donations. We talk about cash flow and income streams and public flotations and diluting the equity. We talk about splashing out on new things. It, it, you know, it, 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 just, it runs through our fingers, for example. Absolutely. And that actually, Ross, is exactly why... Every single society that has had exposure to coins has started, their brains have wired up over, our brains have wired up over thousands of years because it runs through, it runs physically, moves like water, it sounds like water, and it has not been in our pockets, it's cool like water. 
And this is what happens. Our brains wire up when we're growing up to describe things in these pictures. And if you understand those pictures and, and connect those the pictures that you are using, and I say pictures, that means visual and verbal language, then you're starting to really understand the big idea behind your, you know, your business. So we're working with a, with a university at the moment, which has no clear idea of what education is. Some, some people are claiming, some universities think that, think that it's a structure. So they say, you know, building your future, you know, the, the foundation for your life. Others are saying it's about transformation. It's about a new kind of view. It's about moving ahead in your, you know, it's, it's about, um, you know, it's, it's about transforming your life. It's about a new kind of view. It's about an innovative, you becoming more innovative. Others are saying that it's about movement. You know, it's about, uh, it's about getting ahead faster. So you really need to understand how your students or your graduates or your postgrads thinking about that in order to try to match them up. They can be different. They can be different. So one of the interesting parts that I want to go, I know this goes back a couple of years or so, but just explain to me how Bob the Robot and you helped switch customers from Apple to Samsung at triple the rate that they'd been previously switching simply by tweaking questions at sales assistants at Samsung Ask Consumers. How do you do that? Because that clearly shows that a business, if it asks the right question or puts the right statement in front of the consumer, can get a better response rate. Absolutely. It was, a, it was an interesting one because Samsung came to us and said, look, we know we've got a psychology problem. We're asking people, we're back to the focus group thing, asking people why, what they need to do, what dissatisfied Apple customers, how can we get them to switch? And we've asked them, and what have they said? Well, we need our data transferring a bit of money would, would tempt me. And, and they did this, and there was no change. Well, people weren't talking directly about this. So we did it on, online. So we, couldn't, we didn't have a source. So we had to start a conversation. So we started an, we had sort of hour-long one-to-one interviews with, with people where were more deep listening sessions. We use something called clean language. So our moderators... Um, come from a, from a, a, a Kiwi psychologist called Dr. David Grove, and it's a way of, of surfacing people's pictures without you um, polluting them with your own. Uh, so I'm, I'm saying now, polluting is a picture. You don't have to think about that. You can automatically understand that. So we had these, we had these conversations with people, and we recorded them, and then we transcribed them. So we came out of the first session, they, we, we listened to people in London and Paris, um, and we, we got them to build these, these, these uh, picture montages of what it was like to be a dissatisfied Apple customer, what it was like to switch and so on. And we discovered that, um, I can't give you all the details, but there, there was a specific issue that dissatisfied Apple people felt about what made Apple a problem for them. This enabled us to, to absolutely nail the question that people needed to ask. So somebody will come into, into uh, a Samsung shop and they say, oh, I'm, I'm thinking of switching. So what, what, do you have, what do you have now? So Apple, say, oh, you've got an Apple. What can we do? And then the question then, then the question is asked. But I will tell you what the follow-up questions were. Because then they took the transcriptions and put them through Bob, and he picked up all of that stuff that we as human beings don't. We miss them. 
And what he found that there were there were two major differences between males and females. So that the follow up questions um, changed depending on whether you were male or female. So female uh, brilliant. So women are incredibly social and they they were had a plus sixty percent uplift on language around family and friends. And so the follow up question from a woman was to say, What are your friends saying about this? There was a man, men, it was all about they were had they had a thirty percent plus uplift on on procedures and achievement and men believe that they know everything. So the follow up question for a man was to say, You probably know more than me, deference. Um, but is there anything else you need to know to make this decision? And then the follow-up, the, the third question, which was the absolute, which nails it for, for the woman, is women demand a sensory experience. 27% up on, on sensory language. We, we measure this consistently with women. Women are, are, are much more sensory than, than men in general. Uh, and the question was, we're to take them over and say, look, looking at these, are any of these colours, uh, do you like any of these colours at all? Um, and for the man, it was to say, what would you like to, finally, you know, what would you like to achieve by switching? And this absolutely took the switching levels in the stores that were using this onto, onto, onto a new dimension. Because what we were doing was connecting language to, to, to people's deeper feelings. And the great thing, Ross, is it's, you know, most of this, I mean, Bob pulls out a lot of things that we wouldn't pick from, from large amounts of data. You know, we analyzed a million U.S. voters, a million words of U.S. voters from 10, uh, 10 uh, important sort of mid-level cities, for example. Now, that's, that's a, an enormous amount of work for an individual, but Bob, he reads 120 times faster than us, so he does it super quick. It's incredible. One other aspect of this is you may sort of discover the emotive language that might move a person one way or another, but then you've still got to be able to put the message in front of them. So there is a skill clearly in not just knowing what the style of language is or knowing the key words, but you've then got to put it back into a phrase or a catchphrase or a, an advertising slogan or a question for a consumer that still makes them, them work. So in other words, there's not just the, the knowledge of what words might work, but it's actually then putting them into place in the right, in the right situation so the person will respond to it. Yes, you're, yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, what's the great, the great thing about Bob? I mean, he all, we also do a lot of work on, on analysing markets, for example. So we do very often sort of how to position a brand. Most brands spend two-thirds of their money. A third of their money, they oversell the market. In other words, they're selling market generics. And there's only a third of their spend is actually selling their difference. Now, you need to be anchored in the market um, so that you... People know what you are. You know, what makes a single malt whiskey? Single malt whiskey and not a blended whiskey. Well, we know the answers to that question by listening to those, to those brands. So these things are incredibly important. But the reality is that, that Bob is never going to replace creativity uh, and thought because that's, that's what, what he does is give people, gives people the metrics to, to put their creativity uh, and, the, and the talent that we have as human beings to work in the right place. That's really, that's what he does. And, and, and I think you're right. Absolutely. At the end of this, you, you've got bottom-up evidence. Now, the question is, what do you do with it? Um, and that still requires, that requires us people. 
I'll tell you what, it is an amazing story just having a chat with you about this because, you know, it really is a point at which most people probably put slogans and brands and think they're clever, but to then analyse it and understand what the consumer will respond to, it takes it to a totally different level. Alistair Herbert, as I say, is the founder of Lingua Brand, a brand consultancy house that uses psychological insights and language-driven research from Bob the Robot, as I said, Bob Robot, the deep listening tool. It is really quite fascinating and probably should make some businesses sit up and just think about the message they're putting out to their consumers. And Alistair Herbert, I appreciate your time. You're most welcome, Ross. It's been a pleasure. So that's it for this special episode of the Money Minutes. What we'll do from time to time when we get uh, different types of interviews, I'll put them out over the weekend just as a, a little bonus. Now, don't forget, on Monday, I'll be speaking with Roger Montgomery from Montgomery Investment Management about the profits that we've seen so far, some of the big ones, including the Commonwealth Bank and Telstra, but also some of those that are coming in the very near future and the current state of the Australian stock market. In the meantime... I'm Ross Greenwood and these are the Money Minutes.